It's good to be with you this morning. I'm Mark Hadley, one of the pastors here at Twin Cities Church, and I'm so glad you've joined us as we finish up our series today on the book of Jonah. And you know, we've learned a lot about Jonah in this series together. We've learned a lot about our merciful God, and we've also learned a lot about ourselves. Well, as we look at the book of Jonah here, we're going to take a little bit of a U-turn today, and we're going to talk, instead of talking about the book of Jonah, we're going to talk about the example of Jonah. You see, we're going to hear how Jesus used the example of Jonah to tell us something very important about himself and also something very important about us. As we look at our story today, we'll see that Jesus had an encounter with religious leaders, the Pharisees. And in this encounter, Jesus unveils something very important about their heart. You see, it's something that wasn't necessarily visible, but yet it was very diabolical. It's something that we have to pay attention to in our own heart as well. It's something that we'll call the prove-it-to-me attitude. Speaking of the prove-it-to-me attitude, there's a story of three lunatics who lived in an insane asylum. And the first lunatic said to the second, he said, did you know that I am Napoleon Bonaparte? To which the second said, well, there's no way you're Napoleon Bonaparte because I am Napoleon Bonaparte. To which the first responded, oh yeah, well, who says you're Napoleon Bonaparte? Prove it to me. To which the other one said, well, God told me so. Which is when the third lunatic piped in and said, oh no, I did not. (laughs) Yeah, the prove it to me attitude, it sort of has this sense of arrogance to it doesn't it? You see, when we say prove it to me, we put ourselves in a position of power. And I stand over you and I say, you have to prove yourself to me. Now, obviously, there are going to be times when we have to examine carefully what people tell us to make sure that it's true. But at the same time, I think there are times when we just don't want something to be true. And so we hide our heart from it and try to deny it and refuse it because it intimidates us in some way. You know, I think for a lot of us, it's kind of the way that we view God. You know, God is kind of pretty much undeniable, and yet the concept of this supreme being who oversees our life and has this cosmic control, it's very threatening to us. And so I think what happens is we start to look around for every excuse that we can to dismiss him and to run away from him. Even as God reveals himself all around us, you know, in in nature, in circumstances, and in his word, and yet we remain unconvinced and we kind of cross our arms and we say, prove it to me. (laughs) And this is the issue we're going to talk about today. As we look at how our heart responds to the miracle of God's mercy. And I want you to interact with us. You'll see there's a chat box there. As we go through our message, we want to hear from you. We want to talk about today, as we watch the miracle of God's mercy unfold before us, are our hearts astounded or are they adversarial? So if you haven't done it yet, look up there at the tab, and there's a place there where you can also download the message notes. And I encourage you to do that. And if you have a Bible, grab that, and we're going to take a look today at Matthew chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, you can just watch the verses up on the screen. So before we launch into our study, I kind of want to give a little bit of a background here to talk about the circumstances that were going on before we enter into our story. 
And so in Matthew 12, 22 to 24, we see that there was a man that was brought to Jesus, and this man was possessed with demons. He was blind, and he also couldn't speak. I mean, just imagine what that man was going through, tormented by evil spirits, unable to see in total blackness, unable to express himself. I mean, literally, he was frozen in isolation in a prison of darkness. And Jesus looks at this man with incredible compassion. And Jesus casts out these spirits from his life. He touches and heals his eyes. He unloosed his tongue so the man can speak. And just imagine what those first words were as he uttered praises for the miracle of mercy that God had given him. Well, all the people around him, they're hearing, they're seeing what Jesus had done. They're beginning to rejoice and they're asking themselves, is this the Messiah? Well, of course, this catches the attention of the Pharisees who are not happy about this at all. And they scoff at Jesus and say, The only way this man, Jesus, can cast out demons is by the prince of demons, Beelzebub. You see, they reacted to everything that Jesus had done. Jesus showed his power over the spiritual realm, power over the physical realm. Jesus restored this man and gave him wholeness and life and hope. And all they could do was scoff and look at God's mercy with incredible contempt. And that's where we enter our story today. Matthew 12, 38 says this. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. All the miracles that Jesus had just done right in front of their eyes, and yet they still stand there and say to him, Prove it to me. Show us something bigger, something more miraculous. You know, I think there's just a certain point where what we're able to see is really determined about more about what we're willing to see. It's kind of what we could call a chosen blind spot, you know, where we can't begin to understand what's true because we're blind to the truth. They don't want to believe in Jesus, so no amount of proof would ever have convinced them. And the real issue had nothing to do at all with a sign, but it had more to do with the fact that they refused to surrender their will to God. We're never ever going to really be able to see God if our hearts and will are set against him, which leads to our first point, and that's this. I surrender my will to God's rule. Now, the Pharisees, what they wanted is they wanted their way instead of God's way. I just think this is so natural. This comes naturally to us, kind of like a pig wallowing in the mud But I don't think we have any beginning comprehension as to how reprehensible, how diabolical this is to God. You know, Jesus calls this out exactly for what it is. In Matthew 12, 39, he says, Jesus answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus saw that their hearts were devoted to self rather than to God. And he calls this wicked and adulterous. He says that it's immoral and unfaithful to God. You know, asking for a sign was nothing more than just a distraction to the real issue, 
which was their heart. Jesus told them that no sign would be given to them except for the sign of Jonah. And it wasn't because Jesus, the creator of the universe, was incapable of performing a miraculous sign. In fact, Hebrews 2, 3 to 4 tells us that the salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. You see, God had already proven in so many ways that Jesus Christ was his son. And just as those verses said, you see, there were prophecies about Jesus hundreds of years before Jesus ever was born and did what he did. There were eyewitnesses who saw Jesus heal the blind, help the lame walk, still the storms, raise people from the dead. And today we have the witness of God's Holy Spirit living in God's people. You know, God doesn't ask us at any time just to kind of believe in belief or to have faith in faith. No, God calls us to believe the truth. He sent his truth. He speaks his truth. He reveals himself through his truth. And God's truth shows him to be the real and powerful and living God. But the light of God's truth, you see, is very dim in a darkened heart. The difference between the disciples of Jesus and the Pharisees, you see, had very little to do with evidence or a lack of evidence. You know, there were a lot of people that were standing there, hundreds of people that saw everything that Jesus did, all the miracles, heard every word that he said, the profound truth of God, and yet they walked away. Or even worse, they sought to kill him. The difference between the disciples and the Pharisees is that the disciples chose to believe Jesus while the Pharisees chose not to believe in him. Faith is based on truth. Truth doesn't need signs to believe. Jesus said that no sign would be given except for the sign of Jonah. So what is this sign of Jonah? Well, Jesus tells us in the next verse, in 1240, he says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. As we study the first chapter of Jonah, if you remember, Jonah told the sailors to toss him overboard into the sea. And he did this to stop this severe storm that God had sent that was beginning to make the boat crumble and would have ended in the demise of all aboard. And Jonah surrendered his life, which saved the men. And then Jonah began to sink down and down and down to the depths of the sea. And God sent a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of this fish. And then was spewed out upon the land, back to life again. You see, Jonah is a type. He's a sign that points to Jesus Christ, to his death, his burial, and his resurrection to life again. Jonah pointed to Jesus, and Jesus' example points to us. You see, Jesus is the perfect example of a life that was completely surrendered to God's will. 
right before Jesus was to go to the cross, the night before, he was in a garden with his disciples, and Jesus was really wrestling. Jesus, being both God and man, his humanity was facing this horrible trial before him, and Jesus was really struggling, struggling with the grim reality of what lie ahead, that he would take on the sins of the entire world, that he would absorb the holy righteous wrath of God, that he would feel the isolation from the Father, that he would sense the excruciating pain of crucifixion. And Jesus wasn't sure he could walk in to that nightmare. Matthew 26, 39 tells us about this. It says, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus was sweating blood. He was agonizing and overwhelmed with sorrow. And yet he trusted God the Father. He says, not my will be done, but your will be done. He completely surrendered his will and life into God's hands. And aren't you glad that he did? You see, the sign of Jonah was Jesus being willing to die, to give his life, to sacrifice himself for sin, to descend to the earth, that he would die by the hands of these religious rulers who were standing right in front of him. But then he would rise to new life, victorious forever over death. The sign of Jonah would confirm that Jesus Christ was God's son. It would be the last opportunity for these men to believe. And it's given to us as a sign by God to show that Jesus Christ is truly God's son. Jesus' resurrection is all that we need. And still, you know, many remain unconvinced. And we stand as judge, you know, in, in, in the courtroom of our mind. And we stand back, we say, you know, I've heard the evidence, I've heard the witnesses, and yet I'm still unconvinced. And maybe you yourself are still wrestling, still unconvinced with this truth. And so I'm grateful that you're watching today. You know, maybe you're even on this journey where you're trying to investigate the claims of Jesus. So I want to ask you a favor. I want you to go with me for a moment and I want you just to imagine. For the sake of argument, imagine that it is true. And imagine that God truly is the creator of everything And as the creator, all things are his, including you. And that God made you for a purpose. And that God has a plan for your life. Imagine that we're true. Doesn't it just seem a little crazy then that this all-powerful, almighty God powerful enough to speak the world into order, that we would come to him and demand that he prove himself to us, that we would claim ourselves as a judge over God. Give me a sign. Is that really what you need? A sign? You know, what I love about Jesus is that Jesus doesn't always give us what we want, but he does give us what we need. 
And Jesus knows that what we need is not a sign. He knows that what we need is a savior. Every day, each and every day, we violate God's standards. We tarnish his laws. We run away from his character. We run after things that distance ourselves from him. We're constantly unaware that we are poisoning ourselves and poisoning everything and everyone around us. We're self-destructing and we don't even know what we need. Well, what is it that we need? Well, that's our next point. And that's that we need to recognize, I need to recognize my guilt before God and repent. See, whether we choose to accept it or not, we don't have any right to play judge over God. God alone is the ultimate judge of the universe, of everything that he has created. And God tells us in his word, the Bible, where he has revealed his character, revealed his truth, revealed himself so that we can know him and his ways. God tells us that one day, each and every one of us will stand before him to give an account of our life. In Hebrews 9, 7, it says, that just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. You know, the courtroom is kind of a curious thing. I don't think anybody goes into a courtroom feeling like they're guilty. I mean, we all think that we're innocent. You know, we, we want to justify ourselves. We want to just maybe find someone else that's worse than us, point to them and say, you know what, I'm not so bad. I mean, look at that guy over there. <laughs> I mean, that's what we do. And the Pharisees made a sport of comparing themselves to everyone else in order to make themselves look good, in order to see themselves as righteous. I mean, they would pray on the street corners so that everyone could see. They would give out their money so that everyone would admire them. They'd walk around pious, looking righteous and holy. Like surely at the judgment, they would expect God to stand up and applaud, saying, way to go, you're the best. Well, Jesus kind of tears that whole fantasy apart. And he says in Matthew 12, 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus told them that the men of Nineveh would stand in judgment against them. Now remember, these people of Nineveh, they were horrible, evil people. And to the, gentle, or to the Jews, these were Gentiles, I mean filthy people. And yet, God says that the Ninevites would stand against the Pharisees. Well, the Pharisees, they saw themselves as God's chosen, the protector of God's laws, the guardian of his covenant. God who had been with the Israelites for generations, they saw themselves as righteous and holy people. And yet Jesus said that the Ninevites would stand to judge them? How could this be? And Jesus says right here that the Ninevites, when they heard the words of God spoken through the prophet Jonah, that they repented. They repented. They heard God's word and they responded. Just picture for a minute. I mean, what was it like to live in Nineveh? 
I mean, in this cruel, heartless society with horrible, cruel people. I mean, maybe in order to picture it, just imagine what it would be like for you right now to walk inside San Quentin prison. I mean, what would that be like for you? So there you are in Nineveh, walking around, living your godless life. And then this bedraggled prophet walks up and he's looking a lot like fish guts and smelling like vomit. And he starts to say, 40 days and Nineveh will fall. It will be destroyed. What do you imagine his response was in that society? I mean, jeering, mocking, maybe even they spear him right there on the spot. But you see, that's not what happened. Not at all. No, the hearts of the Ninevehs began to melt and the truth of God was cutting them right to the core. The power of it struck them because they knew that it was true. They knew they were evil. They knew they had broken God's standards and ways. It was absolutely undeniable. They couldn't justify themselves. They knew they were guilty before God and they knew that God could judge them and would. And so all they could do was begin to fall on their knees before God and repent and beg God with sackcloth and ashes for 40 days. They begged God for his forgiveness. And God did. God forgave them. And so how is it that these ruthful, ruthless, evil people turn to God based on one sentence. But if you think about it, with one sentence, let there be light. All of the forces of nature, all matter came together under God's command and formed the entire universe because all creation submits to God's command. All that is except for the human heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 tells us this. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. And these Pharisees, they serve as a sober reminder for us to examine ourselves because sometimes our own religion, you see, it can blind us to hearing God's voice. And if we're not careful, our beliefs and rituals can inoculate us from the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You see, the truest test of relationship to Jesus Christ is this. What effect does God's word have on us? When we hear God's word or when we read it, how does it affect me? You know, there's this little boy and he went to the doctor's office for a checkup. And before listening to the boy's heart, the doctor took her stethoscope and she placed it in the little boy's ears and took the disc and put it on his heart so that he could hear his own heartbeat. And then she said to him, now listen. What do you suppose that is? And the little boy's eyebrows cinched together. He listened carefully to the tap, tap, tapping in his chest. Puzzled. And then his eyes lit up. 
Is that Jesus knocking? (laughs) Oh, that we could have the heart of a little child when we hear God's word, that we could ask ourselves, is that Jesus knocking? Do I hear his voice? Is he calling me? Do his words penetrate my heart? Do they change the way that I act, the way I speak, the way that I choose to treat others, the way I value my time and my money? Do God's words change me? Because that's what repentance is. It's changing our ways, going a different direction. And if God's words doesn't change us, transform our life, then the people of Nineveh stand as witnesses against us because with so far less knowledge and understanding, they discerned the voice of God and they repented, which leads to our next point. I desperately seek God's truth and obey it. Well, Jesus then brought another witness before these Pharisees and her testimony speaks to their lack of humility and their lack of of effort to seek the truth, the truth of who Jesus really was. Matthew 12, 42 says this, the queen of the south will rise at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. So who is this queen of the south? Well, in 1 Kings 10, we learn that this is the queen of Sheba. Sheba was located in what we now know as Ethiopia. And this was considered to be the far ends of the earth to the Israelites. Well, she was also a Gentile, a non-Jewish woman who was from a pagan nation who worshipped gods of wood and stone. But see, the queen, she knew that there was something more. As she looked at the order of all the world around her, at the miracle of creation. She knew that there had to be a creator behind it. And she wanted to know who this creator was. And she had a sense that this God would want to know her as well. And so one day as she's ruling over her kingdom, kingdom, the queen heard a rumor that somewhere there was a king named Solomon who had a relationship with this living God And that God had given him special wisdom to be able to speak God's truth. And she wanted to hear the truth of God. And so you know what she did? She got together a caravan of camels, saddled them up, and they began a journey 1,600 miles north through desolate desert. At great cost, at great risk, she traveled so that she could seek God's truth. And Jesus points out to the Pharisees that they had not traveled far and they had not dug deep to find God's truth. In fact, Jesus had come from heaven to earth in order to reveal his wisdom to them. And yet their hearts were so dark and deceived that they didn't even recognize him. And that's because God's truth, you see, is only revealed to hearts that are open. And so the queen of Sheba, you see, she testifies against those to whom God reveals his truth and those who choose to close their eyes 
and close their hearts and deny him. And this is something we have to pay attention to in our own lives. You see, at the judgment, what would we say to God? You know, God, I know I should have taken more time to get to know you. I was just so busy. You know, there were so many things going on, so many distractions, so many obligations. And if we think about it, saying that we just don't have enough time, well, the Queen of Sheba, she left everything, all her responsibility. She was ruling over a kingdom just to seek a tiny bit of God's truth. You know, we have our Bibles. We have hundreds of, of Christian resources all around us. Years of history of people who have followed Christ faithfully. We have the Holy Spirit inside us. And to say we don't have enough time for God, it's kind of like we're saying, you know, God, actually, you're just not that important to me. Because isn't it true that we always seem to find time for the things that are most important to us? The thing about Jesus' words is that they're eternal. And even they were spoken to the Pharisees, they apply to us as well. And at the final judgment, you see these witnesses will be saying to us and reminding us that being religious is no protection and being busy is no excuse. And yet it's important to remember that God has given us a sign that brings us incredible hope and that we have an advocate at the judgment. The sign of Jonah, it points to Jesus. And Jesus is all we need. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to anyone who believes. The gospel is all you need. And what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ came to earth as a man in order to die for our sin on the cross so that he could conquer sin, pay our penalty for our sin, wipe it away, die for that sin, and then raise victorious over sin, raise to new life. And he gives us the opportunity to know this new life, resurrection life, if we're willing to surrender our life and trust entirely in him for salvation. That's the gospel, the good news. And so how do we respond to the gospel? Well, the Ninevites are a great example to us, aren't they? We repent. We turn from our sin. We turn to God and pursue him with all our hearts. We listen to Jesus. We follow his ways. We change. We accept his grace and mercy and forgiveness. And if your heart is ready... Jesus is eager to accept you as his child. And I just can't imagine that you're more evil than the Ninevites. I just can't imagine that you're more stubborn than Jonah or more lost than the Queen of Sheba. But even if you are, you see, you're never outside the open arms of God. And God's ability to clean you up is far greater than your ability to mess up your life. Jesus died for you. He died for you to bring you hope, mercy, grace, forgiveness. And he offers you this right now. And so let today be the day that you celebrate God's mercy by allowing you, allowing God's mercy to swallow you up 
Let's listen together to these final closing verses from the book of Colossians. Colossians 3, 1 to 4 says, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. You see, this is our great hope. And this is our great promise. And this is our great opportunity. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we're grateful. We're grateful for the sign of Jonah, a reluctant, stubborn prophet who you extended mercy to and who you opened up and used him to be able to bring salvation to others. That you are our example, God, of that mercy to us when we're stubborn, reluctant, when we do everything we can to push you out of our life. God, I pray for those who, like the Ninevites, their hearts have just been opened by your word, by your mercy, by seeing you and hearing your voice calling out to them, come to me. And I pray that they would come and that they would say, God, here I am. I admit that I have broken your ways. I have run so far from you that I can't even see or sense you anymore. And I just cry out, I cry out to you, God, save me. Save me. I believe that you died for my sin. I believe that you offer me new life, resurrection life. And that's what I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust in you, God. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for these reminders from your word that you are a God who saves and that you are good and powerful and we can trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.